First Baptist Melbourne podcast, making disciples here and everywhere for the glory of God. Some people think of God as far away, too far to hear or care about what's going on in their lives. But God is near. He hears. He cares. He has moved into our neighborhood. And if you know him, he's moved into your heart. He's the God next door. Join us as we encounter him, our God next door. And let's discover together how God's presence means everything for God's people. Good morning, church. It is so good to be back with you today. I know we just sang about how he breaks every chain, how there is salvation only found in his name. And uh, this past week, uh, the team that uh, you sent out uh, that I was blessed to be a part of that was on mission in South Asia was, was able to see that lived out. Uh, as we saw in, in the slums of India, 23 uh, who put their faith in Jesus Christ, uh, some of whom had never heard about Jesus before. And uh, they experienced salvation in his name. And it's just amazing to see the power of, of the gospel, of the mercy and the grace of God as it touches people's hearts, whether that's here or whether that's on the other side of the world. And thank you for praying for us. Well, we're going to share more about uh, that trip uh, in, in a few weeks from now. But it's so good to be back home with you today. And so if you have your Bibles today, and I hope you do, uh, would you turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 1. Today is, is the start of what will be a long journey for us uh, as a church, uh, except for a few uh, breaks that will be thrown in uh, here and there. Uh, we're going to be in the books of First and Second Samuel, uh, walking through these books verse by verse from now until Easter, and not this Easter, Easter of 2020. And uh, so this is the beginning of a long uh, journey, uh, but I'm excited to get started today because the books of Samuel uh, contain some of the most wonderful stories in all the Bible. And the books of Samuel contain some of the most wonderful characters in all of the Bible, characters like Samuel and King Saul and also, of course, King David. Uh, but what we're going to encounter as we read uh, and study the books of Samuel together is uh, where we're not just encountering a collection of neat stories, and we're not just talking about history, but uh, what we're going to experience is, as one person called it, a preached history. A preached history. Because as we read these stories, we're going to encounter the voice of God. Uh, we're going to encounter God's commentary on these stories, what God thought about what was happening back then, but also what God thinks about what's happening today and what these stories have to do with our lives. And of course, like every part of the Bible, as we read First and Second Samuel, we're going to encounter Jesus because all of the Bible points us to our need for a Savior. As you just saw on that video, this first series in 1 Samuel, we're calling it God Next Door, because these opening chapters of the book of 1 Samuel are all about the presence of God with his people, how important God's presence is for God's people. God isn't far off somewhere. God is the God next door. He is here. He is in this room with us. If you know him, he lives within you. And so today, as we talk about this God next door, the God who is present with us, we're also going to talk about how he is a God who hears us. 
who hears us. And that's important because maybe there have been times where you have wondered in your life if God really did hear you. Maybe there's been times in your life where you uh, just have wondered, does God really care about the details of my life, about what's going on in my life? Maybe you've wondered sometimes, you feel like I, I pray and I pray and I just I don't feel like God is answering my prayers and I, I don't know what God is doing. In the first chapter of 1 Samuel, we're going to meet a woman who I believe felt a little bit like that. We're going to talk about her story and what her story has to do with our story and what her story has to do with God's story. And so let's read 1 Samuel together as we get started. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, the words will be on the screens behind me. But 1 Samuel 1, verse 1. Now there was a certain man of Ramathame Zophim of the mountains of Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jehoram, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zoph, an Ephraimite. And he had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. This man went up from his city yearly to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. Also the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, the priest of the Lord, were there. And whenever the time came for Elkanah to make an offering, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah, although the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival also provoked her severely to make her miserable, because the Lord had closed her womb. And so it was year by year when she went up to the house of the Lord that she provoked her, and therefore she wept and did not eat. And then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart grieved? Am I not better to you than ten sons? And so Hannah arose after they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the tabernacle of the Lord. And she was in bitterness of soul and prayed to the Lord and wept in anguish. And she made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a male child, and I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall come upon his head. And it happened as she continued praying before the Lord that Eli watched her mouth. Now Hannah spoke in her heart, only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard, and therefore Eli thought she was drunk. So Eli said to her, how long will you be drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered and said, no, my Lord, I'm a woman of sorrowful spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor intoxicating drink, but I've poured my soul out before the Lord. And do not consider your maidservant a wicked woman, for out of the abundance of my complaint and grief I have spoken until now. Then Eli answered and said, go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition which you have asked of him. And she said, let your maidservant find favor in your sight. So the women went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Verse 19, then they rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord, and returned and came to the house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And it came to pass in the process of time that Hannah conceived and bore a son and called his name Samuel, saying, because I have asked for him from the Lord. Now the man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, Not until the child is weaned, 
And then I will take him that he may appear before the Lord and remain there forever. So Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you've weaned him. Only let the Lord establish his word. Then the woman stayed and nursed her son until she had weaned him. And now when she had weaned him, she took him with her with three bulls and one ephah of flour and a skin of wine and brought him to the house of the Lord in Shiloh. And the child was young. And they slaughtered a bull and brought the child to Eli. And she said, O my Lord, as your soul lives, my Lord, I am the woman who stood by you here praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed. And the Lord has granted me my petition, which I asked of him. Therefore I also have lent him to the Lord. And as long as he lives, he shall be lent to the Lord. And so they worship the Lord there. Father, we thank you for your holy and perfect word. We thank you that you are a God who is with us, that you are a God who hears us. Father, we pray that you would teach us from your word what you would have us to hear today. And we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Before we jump into this chapter, there are a couple of things about uh, this book of 1 Samuel that we need to know. The first thing we need to know is we really don't know who wrote the book of Samuel. Uh, It certainly was not Samuel because he dies in 1 Samuel 25, and so it would be a little difficult to write about the events that happened after that. Uh, Although, spoiler alert, Samuel does come back for one post-death appearance uh, later on in this book. That is a story you definitely don't want to miss. But again, Samuel didn't write this book, or at least not the whole book. Uh, Most likely this book was compiled from a number of different sources and and authors, and Samuel may have been one of those. Uh, We should also know that in the Hebrew Bible, uh, there wasn't a first and second Samuel. There was just Samuel. It was just one book. And the Hebrew ordering of the books was a little bit different. The book of Ruth uh, was found much later in the writings. And so in the Hebrew Bible, the last book you would have read before you turned the page and opened the page to Samuel would have been the book of Judges. And so the very last verse of Judges would have been the last verse you would have read before you read the book of Samuel. And here's the last verse in the book of Judges. It says, In those days there was no king in Israel... Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so the book of Samuel takes place in the days of the judges. This was a dark time in Israel's history. It was a time when, as it says there, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Uh, We're going to see next week that even in the house of God, the priests were doing whatever was right in their own eyes. Things were not good. And the verse says that there was no king yet in Israel. Israel. And so we need to keep that context in mind that while we're reading here in 1 Samuel about how Hannah is searching for a son, the broader context is that Israel is in search of a king. And really that's what the book of 1 Samuel is about. It's about Israel's search for her perfect king. And they wouldn't find that perfect king in King Saul. They thought they had found it in King David for a while, but in the end, he wasn't the perfect king either. They had to wait to find that perfect king until we all found that perfect king, when Mary had a son and laid him in a manger. And really, that's what 1 Samuel is all about. And we're going to see that the story of Hannah and her son is a part of that big story of God sending us the perfect king, King Jesus. 
In verse 1, we're introduced to Hannah's husband, a man named Elkanah, who lived in the mountains of Ephraim. Now, we know from 1 Chronicles 6 that Elkanah was a part of the Levite tribe. But the Levite tribe, you might recall this, they didn't get any particular allotment of land in Israel. They just kind of lived in different cities all over Israel. And apparently, they also lived here in the mountains of Ephraim. But it's important that Elkanah was a Levite because the son that God was about to give Elkanah Samuel would also be a Levite. And that's important because if he wasn't a Levite, he wouldn't be able to serve as a priest and a prophet of God in the tabernacle. And so we meet this man, Elkanah. And uh, every good story, though, has a problem or a conflict in it. Uh, And it doesn't take long for us to figure out what the problem in this story is. It's right there in verse 2. It says, Elkanah had two wives. Now, just to put that out there, nobody should have two wives. That usually doesn't go well, either for the two wives or for the man who has them. Uh, Now, notice that the narrator doesn't comment uh, on that. He just mentions it in passing and moves along. But immediately, we read about a tension that is going on in Elkanah's family. And we should not be surprised that there's a tension in his family. Because when we don't do things God's way, and we know from Genesis 2 that God's way is one man and one woman married for life. When we don't do things God's way, tension inevitably arises. And we see that lived out before us in this story. Now, what's the tension? Verse 2, he had two wives. The name of one was Hannah. The name of the other was Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. That is the problem. And in this day and age, women were pretty well valued based on their ability in this culture, in this agrarian society. They were, their value was based on their ability to have children. And so when it says that Hannah had no children, this was very significant for her. It meant for her in that culture that her sense of meaning, her sense of significance, her sense of worth was gone for her. And so she's laboring under this. She's feeling the strain of this. And to make matters worse, wife number two, Peninnah, who was very fertile apparently, had lots and lots of children, lots of sons and lots of daughters, loved to rub that in Hannah's face. And she especially loved to do that every year when they would go up to Shiloh for the festival. Now, we need to remember where we are in Old Testament history at this point. Uh, Jerusalem is not yet the capital city. Uh, The temple has not yet been constructed under King Solomon. Uh, This was after the children of Israel had wandered in the desert for 40 years. And you remember when they wandered around in the desert, they worshipped in a tent that we call the tabernacle. And when they got to the promised land, they set up that tent, they set up that tabernacle in this city called Shiloh. And by this time, the tabernacle had been expanded a little bit. You can tell it has some walls and some doors and some posts, and it's kind of been made into a tent complex. But nonetheless, it's where the Ark of the Covenant was that represented the presence of God with his people. And it's where the people of God would go up every year to worship the Lord. They would go to Shiloh. And so here, Elkanah's family goes up to Shiloh, and a part of their worship was offering sacrifices and then sitting down to a meal to eat part of that sacrifice. And this was a particularly painful time for Hannah, 
Because what Elkanah does, as the text explains, is that he would give a portion of food to Peninnah, not only for herself, but he would give her an extra plate of food for every son and every daughter that she had. And you just picture Peninnah sitting on her side of the table, and she's got plates of food everywhere. And then picture Hannah sitting on the other side of the table, and she's got how many plates of food? Uno. Now it says here that Elkanah, because he loved her, presumably Hannah was his first wife, and she, he dearly loved her, and he would show that love to her by giving her a double portion of food. It means really a generous portion or, or a special portion, but that really didn't take away the obvious, right? That Peninnah had lots of kids, she had plates of food everywhere, and Hannah had no children, and Peninnah would just love to point that out, and you see that in verses 6 and 7. Her rival, that's Peninnah, also provoked her severely to make her miserable because the Lord had closed her womb. And so it was year by year when she went up to the house of the Lord that she provoked her and therefore she wept and did not eat. And so when it says that Peninnah provoked Hannah, the word that's used there is a Hebrew word that means to thunder or to storm. This is actually the only place in all the Bible that this word is used when it isn't talking about a storm. And I'm sure for Hannah, she felt like she was in a storm and she was in an, an emotional storm. And she had to listen to this other woman who just gave her grief time after time after time. Now, we don't know what Peninnah uh, said to her. We don't know how uh, she provoked her. But, you know, ladies, as much as I love you, uh, you know, ladies can, can sometimes find ways to be pretty nasty to each other when they want to be. Right, And so I don't know what, uh, what Peninnah did. You know, maybe she said, you know, Hannah, I, I'm just having trouble figuring out where to put all of my plates of food for all my little kiddos. You know, you, you probably don't have that problem over there. I can see you all over there by yourself. With, you look like you're pretty spread out. There are plenty of room. I, I don't know how Peninnah did that, but somehow she found ways to, to stick in the needle, right? She found ways to prod and, and to provoke, and, and it was so irritating that, that Hannah reached a point where she didn't even want to be there at the family meal. And so in verse 9, it says Hannah gets up, and she's determined to go and do something about it. And as we walk through the rest of this story today, again, we're talking about the God who hears and I want to share with you five truths about how God hears us. And here's the first truth we need to understand. We can all pour out our soul to God in prayer. We can do that and we should do that. And that's what Hannah does in this story. And it starts with her deciding to get up. In verse 9, it says there, uh, Hannah arose after they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh. And she goes to the tabernacle. And that word arose there is a word that refers to decisive action. That for the first time in this story, things aren't happening to Hannah. For the first time in this story, Hannah is deciding to do something. She's taking some action. Of course, when there's a problem in your life and something that you want to solve, there's a lot of decisive actions that you could take to try to solve those problems, but not all of those are godly actions. Now, there's a lot of things that people try to do to solve their problems or to make their pain go away. Some people turn to drugs or, or to alcohol to mask the pain. But when we do that, we know that only more problems are created. People sometimes turn to ungodly, unhealthy relationships to try to take away 
the pain. Sometimes people uh, try to chase after pleasure or money or, or something that will just make them feel better about their life and forget about whatever that ache is that's going on inside their hearts. But, but none of those things really deal with the root issue. None of those things really deal with what actually is wrong inside of our hearts. And, and actually, whenever we turn to anything other than God, things don't get better. Things get worse. But Hannah doesn't choose any of those things. The decisive action that Hannah takes is to get up and to go to God. And so she goes to the tabernacle, and she's outside of the tabernacle there, and she, her heart is breaking. You can hear that in the words that she uses. Look at verse 11. and It says, She made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me, and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a male child. Then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall come upon his head. Now we'll come back to some of the details of that verse in a minute, but just to hear that word affliction, right? She's, she's speaking about the weight of what is going on in her soul. And, and in verse 15, she tells Eli that she was a woman of sorrowful spirit. And she was barely even able to speak. Her lips were moving, but no sound was, was coming out. And I wonder if you've ever been there. I wonder if you've ever been in a place where your heart was so heavy that, that you tried to pray and nothing was even coming out. That no words were even coming out. You didn't even know what to say because your heart was just so broken before the Lord. And, and I don't know what it is that has brought you to that place or what it is that maybe has you in that place right now. Maybe for some in this room, it is this same issue of infertility that Hannah dealt with. I shared this Bible study in South Asia last week with a group of women, they came and said, we want you to do a Bible study. I had about five minutes notice to do that Bible study. <laughs> and so I said, well, we're just going to do a Bible study on the same thing I'm going to preach about on Sunday. And so I shared this Bible study with a room and only had five women in the room. And after the Bible study was over, one of the women came up for prayer. And she said, I want you to pray because I've been asking God to open my womb and to give me a child. And I thought, this is just like how the Lord does this, how the Lord brings things together. But maybe you find yourself in that situation. Maybe that's what's heavy on your heart. And there's so much pain in that when you have a deep desire to have a child and you're praying for that. And, and yet up until this point, the Lord has not deemed fit to open that possibility. But maybe there's something else that is weighing you down. Maybe it's something different. Maybe it's something with one of your children or something with one of your parents or something going on in your marriage. Or maybe it's a diagnosis that you just received for yourself or someone in your life that you love very much. And maybe you're at a place where you just don't know what to do with it and you're just overwhelmed with it. And what do you do? Where do you take it? Well, we do what Hannah did. We give it to God. And I love the phrase in verse 15 where she says to Eli, No, I haven't been drinking, Eli. I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Church, that is what real prayer is. Real prayer is not a performance. Real prayer is not where we try to use the biggest words that we've ever learned in church to try to impress God. God is not impressed by that. Real prayer is where we, where we get honest with God. 
where we get before him and we pour out our soul before him and we tell him what we're thinking and we tell him what's in our heart. We come to him like a child that comes to his father. Isn't that how Jesus taught us to pray? Our father who art in heaven. And we come to him like a father who loves us because that's what he is. And we pour out our soul before him. You know, the truth of the matter is if we can't be honest when we're on our knees alone with God, where can we be honest? God already knows what we're thinking and feeling anyway. But he wants us to tell him. He wants us to just lay it all out there, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And you know what? When we're on our knees in prayer, God will tell us the parts that are just natural, and God will tell us the parts that are sinful and the things that need to change. But he can't do any of that if we won't be honest with him in the first place. And we won't pour out our soul before the Lord. We can do that. We can all pour out our soul before the Lord like Hannah did because we know that the God that we're pouring out our soul before is a God who cares. He's a God who knows. He's a God who loves us. He's a God who wants to answer our prayers. That's the first truth about God here, how God hears. We need to remember we can all pour out our soul before the Lord. Here's another truth we see in this story. Sometimes nobody gets it except the Lord. Sometimes nobody gets it except the Lord. That was true for Hannah. That's also true sometimes for us. There are some times in our life where nobody in our life, even the people closest to us in all the world, still don't really understand what's going on in the depths of our heart. Again, certainly that was true for Hannah and her husband Elkanah. Now bless his heart. Elkanah was trying right? He was trying. I mean, he was trying to show his love for her. We've already talked about how at the mealtime, he would, he would give her an extra scoop of mashed potatoes, right? I mean, that just makes a woman's heart want to melt, right? I mean, he was, he was trying to show his love. And then I love verse 8. Uh, this is probably my favorite verse in this whole story. Elkanah, her husband, he gives her a rousing speech. <laughs> Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? And why is your heart grieved? Am I not better to you than ten sons? <laughs> I love that, right? Here, here is this, this man, uh, and he says, you know, Hannah, why are you so worried not, about not having children? I mean, after all, you have me. You have wonderful, perfect me. Am I not better to you than ten? It's, just a, it's a wonderful just combining of a complete lack of sensitivity and a total arrogance, right? It's just, just joined together. And yet, sadly, that's what a lot of us as guys do, isn't it? When, when, our, when our wives are upset because we, we just say something like this because we don't even know what to say. And I, I just give you some marriage advice here, guys, and this is just for free. I won't even charge for this. This is just for free. But when your wife comes to you and your wife is upset about something, more often than not, your wife is not looking for you to go into fix-it Felix mode, all right? Your wife is just looking for you to listen, to listen to her, to cry with her, to pray for her, not to try to fix it. Because, you know, a lot of times there are things that are going on in our spouse's life that we can't make better. Only God can make them better. And so we're better off just listening and just being there because if we don't, we'll end up saying something just about as stupid as what Elkanah says right here. But, but he just doesn't understand. 
And Elkanah is not the only man in this story who doesn't understand. When, when Hannah goes to the tabernacle and she's praying there in her anguish of soul, here is old high priest Eli, right? And he's sitting down on this post, right? Right outside of the tabernacle. Hannah doesn't even, doesn't even know that she's, he's there, but, but there he is and he's watching her and her lips are moving, but she's not saying anything. And in that culture, that wasn't really the way normally you pray. Normally you prayed out loud. And so he's seeing her lips moving and mumbling. And, and, and so he goes into full on rebuke mode, right? Verse 14, how long will you be drunk? Put your wine away from you, right? That's probably the last thing she needed, right? A rebuke from the high priest of Israel. But that's what he does. He just doesn't understand. Now, a little bit later, after she explains, I'm not really drunk, I've just been praying, he realizes it, he blesses her, he prays for her. But at first, even this man of God doesn't get it. There are times when nobody gets it. There are times when you come to your pastors and we don't get it. Times when you talk to your spouse and they don't get it. Times when you call up your best friend and, and they don't get it. There are times when we really don't even have the ability to fully express to someone else in clear language what's actually going on inside our hearts. But isn't it encouraging and comforting to know that the God who made us and the God who saves us always gets it. He knows what's going on inside our hearts and he knows why. He knows us better than we even know ourselves. He always gets it. And he knows how to sort it all out and he knows how to lead us through it and how to teach us from it. And even when nobody else gets it, the Lord gets it. Here's truth number three about how God hears us. This might be the most important one of all. We experience joy and peace when we pray and we leave the results to God. Uh, there's something really cool in this story that I want you to notice with me. Hannah goes to the tabernacle, right? She prays. Eli thinks she's drunk. She says, no, I'm not drunk. I'm just praying. Uh, Eli says, I pray that the Lord will give you what you've asked for. And then look in verse 18. It says, she said, let your maidservant find favor in your sight. And so this woman went her way and ate, and listen, and her face was no longer sad. Verse 19 says, the next morning she gets up and she worships the Lord. She's a different person, right? Hannah now has joy where she used to have sorrow. And, and here is the question. Here's the question. At this point in the story, was Hannah pregnant? Yes or no? No. Right? She's not pregnant until verses 19 and 20. At this point in the story, God has not yet answered her prayer. All she has done is she has prayed. And God has filled her with joy. And she gets up from praying and she goes her way. And the next day she's able to worship the Lord like she wasn't able to do the day before. How is this possible? It didn't happen because God answered her prayer. It happened before God answered her prayer. And I think there's a couple of reasons why. I think first of all, it's about the way that she was praying. I think that the way she prayed this time was a little bit different. Now, I don't know about you, the text doesn't tell us this, but I can only imagine that Hannah had prayed for God to give her a child hundreds of times before. 
Right? This was always on her heart. It was always on her mind. I'm sure she had prayed hundreds of times before for the Lord to give her a child. But, but the way she prays this time is different. Verse 11, she says, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a male child, I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall come on his head. I really don't think that Hannah is, is bargaining here with the Lord. I really think that Hannah is desiring that God would give her a son so that she can give that son back to the Lord. When she talks about no razor coming upon his head, that was a part of what is known as the Nazarite vow. There were some other parts of that vow as well. Usually that vow was just for a certain period of time, but here she's saying, I want my son to be a Nazarite his entire lifetime. Now, the most famous Nazarite in all the Bible was also in, found in the book of Judges in this same time period, and that was Samson. And if you remember, his hair not being cut played a pretty prominent role in his story. And so she's praying this. She's saying, Lord, if you will give me a son, I will give that boy back to you to serve you in a special way all the days of his life. But, but here's the thing. By, by doing that, by saying to God, God, if you give me a child, I'm going to give him back to you and he's going to grow up in the tabernacle. Think about it. Hannah was giving up every benefit that would have come to her for having a child. Right? She wasn't going to have him in the house with her, giving her emotional support. Peninnah could probably still make fun of her, right? She's still going to be alone at the table. Samuel wasn't going to be there when Hannah got old to take care of her in that culture, which was so important and so needed. That wasn't happening because she was, he wasn't a regular boy. She was giving him away to the Lord. She was giving away every benefit that she would have had by having a son. And so as one commentator put it, every time before when she had prayed for a son, she was praying for a son because she thought that if God gives me a son, I'm going to have the significance that I need. I'm going to have the meaning that I need. I'm going to have the value that I need in life, but what you hear in her prayer here is a little bit different. I think that she realized for the first time that her significance and her meaning and her purpose would not come when God gave her a son, but it came in the Lord himself. And that's why even before God answers her prayer, she's able to get up off her knees with joy. And here is the deal. Yes, we should ask God for things. The Bible says we have not because we ask not. Jesus said, knock and the door will be open. Ask and it will be given to you. So yes, we need to ask God for things that are on our heart. But here is the truth. I want you to see this. The answer to our prayer is never ultimately the thing that we are asking for but it is God himself. The answer to our prayer is never ultimately the thing that we are asking God for, but it is God himself. What we really need most, what will really bring our lives worth and value and significance is not for God to give us a thing or even a person. It's for God to give us himself. And when we're in a relationship with God, we find all the significance and the worth that we'll ever need. The point of this story is not that every couple who struggles with infertility, if they pray hard enough, and if they pray often enough, and if they use just the right words, that God will give children to every infertile couple. That's not the point of this story. Now, there are some people who teach that, but that's not what the Bible teaches. Sometimes God, in his goodness and in his grace, says no 
to our prayers. He says no to our prayers for children. He says no to our prayers sometimes for healing. And we don't understand it, and we may not understand it until we get to heaven, that he has a plan for us that is somehow better for us, although we don't see it in this lifetime. The point of this story is not that God always says yes. The point of this story is that God himself is enough. I think Hannah came to see that. And that's why she had joy even before the Lord answered her prayer. But I also think she had joy because, listen, there is peace and joy to be found when we just simply pray. When we bring our request to God and we just lay it out before the Lord and we can get up off our knees and know that I have given that matter to God and God is a good God who loves me and who cares for me and the God of all the earth will do right. Isn't that what it says? In Philippians chapter 4, when Paul said, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And if you do that, here's what's going to happen. The peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. If we'll take everything to God in prayer, we can have joy and we can have peace, whether or not God says yes or no to our requests. Now, in Hannah's case, God mercifully, graciously says yes. And he gives her the child that she prayed for. In verse 20, it says, It came to pass in the process of time that Hannah conceived and bore a son and called his name Samuel, saying, Because I have asked for him from the Lord. The name Samuel technically means the name of God, but it sounds like the Hebrew word for ask for. And that's why Samuel says, or Hannah says, I'm naming him Samuel because I've asked for him from the Lord. And then really the rest of chapter 1 is about Hannah keeping her vow that she made to the Lord to give Samuel back to him. And of course, as Solomon tells us in Ecclesiastes, it's better not to make a vow at all than it is to make a vow and not keep it. And so she keeps her vow, and after she weaned him, which in that culture could have taken up to three years, She brought him to Eli the priest at the tabernacle and she left him there. She would come back and see him each year, but she left him there. That's where he grew up, ministering as a boy in the courts of the Lord and the house of God. And quickly, based on that, here's a fourth truth that we need to understand. When the Lord gives us what we ask for, we should give it back. When the Lord gives us what we ask for, we should give it back. Why? Because everything we have belongs to him. In verses 27 and 28, she says, For this child I prayed, Eli. Here she is standing before Eli. Little Samuel is at her side, probably three years old at the time. And she says, This is the child that I have prayed for. And God has granted me my petition, which I asked of him. That's almost the identical sentence that Eli said to her before. May the Lord grant you the petition that you have asked. And she said, the Lord has done that. He has granted me the petition I have asked, and now I have lent him to the Lord. He has lent to the Lord as long as he lives. Of course, Samuel was a unique figure in the Bible, but there is a sense in which what we're reading here applies to all of us. There's a sense in which everything we have should also be lent to the Lord. Because it belongs to him. Now, certainly that's true with our children. 
That we understand that our children have been given to us as gifts by God and we should have an open hand with them. We should understand that they are lent to the Lord all the days of their life. The reality is, isn't that they are so much lent to the Lord as it is that the Lord has lent them to us. Right? Our children ultimately belong to God. And in his goodness and in his graciousness, he allows us to raise them. And he allows us to invest in them and to take care of them and to hold them for a short time. But in the end, they're not ours. They're his. They're lent to the Lord. And it's not just that way with our children. It's that way with everything in our lives. Our possessions, our financial resources, our houses, our gifts, our relationships, all of it belongs to God. Why? Because Romans 12 says, my whole life has been laid on the altar as a living sacrifice to God. It all belongs to Him. It all is His. And so may we do that even every day of our lives when we pray about the things that we have and the people in our lives and our children especially. May we just lift them up to God in prayer and say, God, they're already yours. They belong to you. What you've given to me, I give back to you because it was already yours to begin with. A final truth to share. This one comes from the opening verses of chapter 2 and, and really just the story of Samuel's life. We've been talking about asking God and how God hears us. And, and here's the truth. God's purposes are, are bigger than we could even think to ask. God's purpose is what God is up to, what God is doing is bigger than we can even think to ask. In the end, Samuel's birth isn't about just one woman and one child. It isn't about just one family that's happier now because both wives have children. It's about a lot more than that. There's a reason why the book of Samuel opens with this story. I think that Elkanah and Hannah had an idea that something bigger was at foot. I think Elkanah and Hannah knew that their son somehow going to be a part of the plan of God. And of course, he would be. Their son would grow up to be a spiritual leader of God's people. He was the last of the judges. And he was the first of the prophets. And he was the one that God would use to pour oil on the head of King David and anoint him as king. The one through whom King Jesus would later come. Of course, Hannah didn't know all of that. She couldn't possibly have seen all of that, but she knew that she and her family were a part of a bigger story of what God was doing. And so in chapter 2, she just opens up her heart and prays, and really this is more like a song of, of praise to God. And let's read these words. 1 Samuel 2, Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. I smile at my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. No one is holy like the Lord. There's none beside you, nor is there any rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let no arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is the God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty men are broken. Those who have stumbled are girded with strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread. The hungry have ceased to hunger. Even the barren has borne seven. And she who has many children has become feeble. The Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and he brings up. The Lord makes poor and he makes rich. He brings low and he lifts up. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the beggar from the ash heap to set them among princes and make them inherit the throne of glory. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's. He has set the world upon them. He will guard the feet of his saints, but the wicked shall be silent in darkness. For by strength no man shall prevail. 
The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces. From heaven he will thunder against them. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. And then Elkanah went to his house at Ramah, but the child, Samuel, ministered to the Lord before Eli, the priest. I have to say, this song in verses 1 through 10 is not what you would think that a woman would sing right after she has a child. Right, this is not exactly a lullaby, right? She's speaking about uh, breaking the bows of the mighty and people being lifted out of the ash heap, right? This is, this is not a typical song that you would think that a new mom would sing. And yet, in many ways, Hannah's song here in chapter 2 of 1 Samuel is very much like Mary's song that she sings in Luke chapter 1 after she finds out that she has been given the privilege of giving birth to the Savior of the world. That would be a good exercise this week, just reading those two songs side by side and looking for all the similarities between them. These songs were written by two of the godliest women in the Bible, women who understood what God was doing and that what God was doing in and through their lives was a part of something far bigger than them. And so we only have time just to touch on this, but there's a few themes in the song of, of Hannah here that, that really are themes of the entire book of Samuel that we're going to see in the months to come. And so first off, in Hannah's song and in First and Second Samuel as a whole, we see that God is sovereign and that salvation comes from him. God is sovereign and salvation comes from him. Hannah understood that God is sovereign over all things. So she praises God in verse 2. She says, there's no one like you, God. And in verse 1, she says, God, it's, it's in you. I, I rejoice in your salvation. She knows that, that her salvation individually and the salvation of everyone is not her doing. It wasn't Eli's doing. It's God's doing. Salvation comes from him. And, and so in the middle part of this, of this hymn, she gives several pairs of things. She talks about the weak and the strong. She talks about those who are full, those who are empty, those who are dead, those who are alive, those who are rich, those who are poor, and, and so on. And in every case, she says, God, it's you that does it. God, you're, you're the one who, who makes the, the weak people strong. You're the one that makes the empty people full. You're, you're the one who, who does all of this, God. You're the one who brings life out of nothing. And you don't only do that physically, God. You're the one who does that spiritually. Salvation is entirely from the Lord. And by the way, I think that's part of the reason why when you read through the Bible, you see how many times God chooses barren women to be instruments through which children are born that play a huge role in God's salvation plan. Go back in your mind through the pages of Scripture. Think about that. Sarah was barren. Rebecca was barren. Rachel was barren. Hannah was barren. Even the mother of John the Baptist, Elizabeth, was barren. Now, why does God keep doing this, right? Why, why is this? A, is everybody barren, right? Why, why is there a, a theme like this that runs throughout the Bible? I, I think it's because God wants us to know that salvation doesn't happen from our own doing. That salvation doesn't happen because we're able. Salvation doesn't happen because we have what it takes. Salvation happens because God has what it takes. And so God delights in bringing life where there isn't any. That's what he does in salvation history, and that's what he has done in our hearts if we know the Lord. But of course, we can only know the Lord if we're humble enough to receive him. And that's the second theme. God exalts the humble, and he humbles the proud. 
In, in these pairs of things that we just talked about, the strong and the weak, the full and the hungry, and, and so on, what Hannah's saying here is that there is a reversal that happens. Over and over, those, those who are strong in their pride, those who think they are strong, God makes them weak. But those who are weak, in other words, those who know they're weak, God exalts them and makes them strong. Those who are full, those who think I have everything I need, God delights in showing them how empty they really are. But those who are empty, those who know they have nothing but God, God delights in raising them up and filling them up. It is what God does. He exalts the humble, but he humbles the proud. It's what Jesus taught. It's what the New Testament teaches. God gives grace to the humble, but he opposes the proud. And we're going to see this lived out in the pages of 1 Samuel. You meet King Saul, who's a foot taller than everybody else. And yet by the end of his story, he's brought down to size. Then you meet David, who's smaller, younger. He's the run of the litter. And yet God delights in taking him and raising him up as the king of Israel. This is just what God does. And, and it's the same today. Friend, if you want to experience the grace of God, you're only going to experience it if you humble yourself enough to admit that you need it. If you think you don't need it, if you think you don't need a doctor, Jesus said, I came for those who know they need a doctor. If we don't know we need him, then we're never going to meet him. And here's the final theme I want us to see in this prayer of Hannah. She knows that one day God will send his anointed king. And that king has already come. It's pretty shocking, actually, the end of verse 10 when she says he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Because at this time, we already said this, at this time, there is no king. Who is she talking about? But she knows that God has promised to send a king. And she uses the word anointed one here. And by the way, this is the first time the word anointed one shows up in the Bible. And the word anointed one is the Hebrew word for Messiah, which is the same as the Greek word Christ. She's praying for a king, and she's praying for a king that wasn't King Saul. She's praying for a king that wasn't King David. She's praying for a king that was Jesus the Christ. He is the one that this story is really about. Because the son that God gave to Hannah, Samuel, would grow up and pour oil on the head of King David. And one day, many generations later, David would have a son named Jesus. He is the Messiah. He is the answer to all of our prayers. He is the answer to our deepest needs. And so the most important question I could ask you today is not do you know Hannah and not do you know Samuel, it's do you know Jesus? Have you ever poured out your heart to God and prayed that God would save you through Jesus? And if you haven't, you can do that right now where you are and that God next door. The God who hears you will save you in a moment. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you that you are a God who hears, and you are a God who hears even the prayers that we didn't know we should be praying, the prayers for a Savior. And you have sent that Savior, and your, your son Jesus was that Savior who died for us on the cross, who paid for all of our sins, and who rose again on the third day. And I pray, God, right now, if there's anyone in this room that doesn't know Jesus, 
that they would come to know you, that they would pour out their heart before you right now and confess their sins and ask you to forgive them. And Father, you promise us that when we do that, when we come to you with a true heart, a genuine heart that desires to change, that desires to be forgiven, that you delight to meet us right where we are, even if we feel like our life has been a failure up until now, even if we feel like Hannah felt, like we have no meaning, no significance, no purpose, God, you love to meet us right where we are. And you delight to raise us up and to fill us with your spirit and to give us life and hope and purpose. God, would you do that right now in the heart of someone in this room? In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.